Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 11th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As you've already been hearing on LMFM News, there has been a bitter response to an information campaign launched by Louth County Council informing people living here about their right to vote in the upcoming local and European elections. Let's speak to Sinn Féin Councillor Tomás Sharkey, who has been raised some very significant concerns about the response to this online campaign. And a very good morning to you, Tomasa, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this was a, a message uh, that was posted online in various languages for people who weren't born in this country but are living in this country and have a right to vote. But for those of us who haven't seen the response, maybe you'd Tell us a, a little bit uh, about what people have been saying in response. Thanks very much, Michael, and good morning. Good new, good new year to yourself and all your listeners. And I appreciate you, the opportunity to discuss this. Well, first of all, everybody who's resident in Ireland has a right to vote. Irish citizens resident in Ireland will vote in the local council elections, in Dáil elections, European elections, presidential elections and the referendum. UK citizens resident in Ireland can vote in the local and at all elections, and all EU citizens can vote in the council elections and in the European elections. If you're a non-EU citizen living in Ireland, you can vote in the council elections. That's bottom line, and that's the way it has been for many a long year. I think it's right back to the 60s. But Councillor Conor Keelan, he's our constitutional expert in Loud County Council, and he'd put me right if I, if, if I have the year wrong. I'm sure he will, yes. I, yeah. I'd have thought so, it would have gone with European membership, uh, but perhaps it not. Comes it with your, yeah. Well, with European membership, mm. if, you're a mem- if you're a citizen in the EU, you have a right to vote in a European election. If mm. you're a resident in Ireland, you have a right to vote in the council election. Mm. Bottom line, that's the way it is. If that's how our democracy And that's if you were born in Timbuktu. You live here, so you have a right to vote for the people who you would like to represent you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. In the next 24 months, Mike, 3 billion human beings on this planet will be voting in various elections from India to the US to the UK, across the EU and here in Ireland. 3 billion people will be voting because that's what we do as human beings. We have human rights and we have a franchise. Mm. So the council staff 
and I applaud the council staff because they've been doing this for for the last 21 years at least that I've been on the county council to have been always promoting for as many people as possible who have a right to vote to make sure that they're on the electoral yeah. register. Because I, I imagine a lot of people don't know that they have a right to vote. They probably yeah. don't even know that there are elections taking place in some <clears> circumstances. Absolutely, and especially the way that the modern media works. Like you could go through your full week not seeing, not listening to, to regular radio like yourself if you are if we can call you regular Mike or not watching regular TV I'll take that as an insult yeah (laughs) you can go through life and not really know it but right from the old days of an ad in the local newspaper to leaflets indoors but now it also has to go on social media and the county council staff in fairness have been doing a brilliant job promoting it I've been at community events in the last 12 months where, where youth groups where there's Pencil, colouring pencils, promoting the get on the register, mm. post-it notes, posters, pens, all the all the gimmicks that you can think of to make sure that people know that they're entitled to vote. And on social media, it's been going out in a range of languages mm. uh, and, and across. And, and social media is a, a great thing uh, in that sense uh, because I, I mean you couldn't broadcast this program, let's say, in many different languages. Uh, it would be impossible to do that uh, I don't think I'd have the fluency in uh, any but the one that I'm speaking in at the moment but I do remember living in uh, a, a different country, a foreign language country to us uh, many years ago as a youngster and it is very very difficult to keep up with things. I'll tell you a story about that if you don't mind Tomas uh, because I, I think it probably helps like a good story. Uh, I think it probably helps to demonstrate uh, how difficult it is to know what's going on around you when you don't understand the language in a a country. Uh, But I was living abroad. Uh, I didn't speak the language. I went to work one day. I got awfully dirty looks. Couldn't understand it. Had been getting on very well with the employer. Uh, Came home from work. Went back to work the next day. Still a frosty sort of feeling uh, when I went in. And a a few days, uh, no, actually it probably was only within a a day or so, I realised that the clocks had changed and that I was an hour late for work. Uh, and that's an absolute true story but that is the reality of living in a country where you don't speak the language and there are many people here who don't speak the language uh, and that's why this campaign would have been very beneficial I think and and it's not just that Mike it's how languages work when you're living in another country you might be able to carry yourself to order your coffee to greet and to meet and to have your 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 social conversations and communications but when it comes to something like filling in a form for the government and registering to vote and getting your PPS number, there are many people living in Ireland who are very fluent verbally in social language skills in the English language but when it would come to fill in a form for a driving licence, you know, that's a technical mm. language. Yeah. That you, 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 There's different levels of language attainment mm. and even across, even in Gaeltic areas you might find that the most fluent Gael goers in Gaeltic areas might I'd still go to an English version of an official document because their 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 formal language for formal documentation, what might be English words or social language, their normal day-to-day communication language might be Gaelic. So that's why it's important that this promotional campaign is in as many languages as possible for as many people mm. who are entitled to vote know that they're entitled to vote and know how to register stamps for the vote. And mm. that's all good. And everything's been perfect right up yep. until that point. Yep. Now, let's look at the online trolls who are trolling the county council social media with nothing but hatred and racism. 
comments like only Irish people should have a say in any election in Ireland. Right. Only naturalised citizens. Right. Only the Irish should be allowed to vote. Right. Now, this is absolute nonsense because not only do we have these right-wing, far-right trolls mm. who seem to hate anything that is being done in the country, not only do they object to the government that has been elected, and not only do they object to the councillors who were elected and do no work in the council, mm. they now have moved on to a very sinister part of their campaign. They want to restrict who's voting. They want to limit people's access to the franchise of the vote. Mm. Now, even on this small island, it's not that long ago where there was a campaign to, make, to, to try and make sure that everybody had an equal franchise in the vote. Mm. And I'm calling it out, and I called it out at the council meeting on, on Tuesday evening in Dundalk Town Hall. I've spent 20 years and six months in Loud County Council. I hope to God that not one of these racist trolls ever voted for me. Oh, I'd say they never voted. I, I mean, these are headbangers. Well, that's your word now. You're you're going to get a, a pile on on social media for using that. These these are people. These are people, Mike, who seem to think that they don't want people because of where they were born, mm. because of the language that they speak. Yeah. Ah, they're headbangers. No, they're, they're total headbangers. They don't headbangers. Want them to they're, have a right. They're, they're, they're nutters and they're troublemakers and they are the sort of people who will burn pl- buildings down. They're just nutters and there's very few of them. But it, it seems like there's an awful lot of them because they're so vocal. Well, it does seem that there's an awful lot of them. And we also, and I have to be careful, and I think about this last night, Mike, uh, with, with AI and that's artificial intelligence, not the veterinary AI, um, that... Maybe there's a bit of replication, and maybe some of their posts have been copied and pasted from a from a a, a bot factory. A well, bot you, you can guarantee you can guarantee that they're copied and pasted if they're not full of grammatical errors and spelling mistakes. Yeah. Well, we we have people in some of these posts that I'm reading, and I actually have commended this council staff who put, go out of their way as part of their work to use social media mm. to promote that as many as people as possible are registered to have their right to vote. Because let me be very clear about this one. Mm. The more people we have voting in the council election in June 2024 to mm. make sure that the next county council is as representative as possible, mm. the better our sports facilities will be, the better our swimming pools will be, yeah. the better our public facilities and our public uh, democracy will, the our better our democracy relations, will be. The better our relations with our new neighbours will be. Well, Mike, we have people who are using social media to troll county council accounts to make it very clear that they want people, because of the language they speak, not to be entitled to Who the hell do they think they are? I mean, I really am taking umbrage with this. And it's very much in line with the story that I I told you a few moments ago, because uh, when I was a much younger person, I spent many years living in Denmark. And when I got there and couldn't speak the language, yes, I ended up uh, at work an hour late because I didn't know that the clocks had changed. But are you telling me that these people would be saying to me if I was over there that I shouldn't have the right to vote in local elections in Denmark or in the European elections if I, I was living there, especially when you consider that this was a, a, an impoverished state before we joined Europe and because of uh, the contributions from wealthy countries like Denmark, Germany, France, uh, we have seen our fortunes changed and now we're a very wealthy country. 
Well, Mike, no matter, uh, regardless of the, the history of Ireland being financially impoverished, I would hate to think that we're ever socially and humanely impoverished. I'd like to think that even through famine times and emigration that mm. we had a bit of common decency and that we, we always worked with people and we, we, we welcomed people and we worked alongside with people. But what I'd be saying now, Mike, and, and, and I, I said it very clearly on Tuesday, that I hope to God they'd never voted for me in the past and I hope to God that these people would never vote for my party as Sinn Féin in the yeah. future because mm-hmm. their votes were never wanted and aren't wanted. Well, I don't think they vote. Wanted. I don't think they vote. I don't think... I, well, I, you know, they'll tell you they're politicians, they'll carry flags, uh, all this sort of stuff, but all they are is troublemakers who uh, have clutched onto something that they can relate to, which is vile. It's full of hatred, it's full of venom, uh, and it is causing so many problems for so many people in this country because relations are breaking down. They're othering people. They're creating a nos and them situation. And when you have an us and them situation, you have this small group of headbangers, this small group of nutters who are saying, oh, they shouldn't have this and they shouldn't have that and the other. Uh, Eventually it'll backfire on you. Well, uh, I would like to think so, and and I think it, I, I think that they're at the stage now where they're using dog whistling, and dog whistling would be where they're trying to make noises that maybe you and I, who have a bit more of a balanced approach and thoughts with things, mightn't fully hear what they're saying, but it's making sense to somebody of their very same ilk, mm. and they're trying to get a message out to see how much support that they have out there, see if they can get it up to a critical mass. Mm. Because we, we we have to be very careful. We're very lucky in County Lai that we haven't seen any of these horrible scenarios that have been in Donegal's and Ballon Robes and, and Galway's and, and other parts of the country. And please God, that will continue. Because I do think now, Mike, and with everybody's leadership, there are 29 local councillors mm. and Loud County Council, with everybody's leadership, that we all hold firm and at the first instance of these utterances, utterances, we actually say, no, you're wrong, we're not tolerating that, you leave. Now, as for, for the last 20 years as a county councillor and one, uh, my own family member worked in, in the Sinn Féin constituency office for years and it has always been the practice at the first instance of somebody trying to introduce that type of racist diatribe, they're told, you're wrong, we're not tolerating yeah. that. We're not witching that line of thinking. And if they ask it, and my own mother had to put people out of her office down the years for being racist and being horrible. But I want us all to know, and I want your listeners to know, that the politicians, the elected politicians across the LMFM listenership area, all are very consistent. We call this out. This trolling is wrong. The council officials, and I know that there's been debates about council management in the uh, the last couple of weeks, Mike, but the council officials who are doing their best to make sure everybody has their right to vote registered Mm. are doing the right thing, and I commend them, and I really do think that they've been very patient in how they've been handling with the trolling. Whatever about about in the council chamber, you're going to have your work cut out for you in uh, the campaign. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm dreading uh, the election campaigns, to be honest. Uh, I think they're going to be very bitter, divisive, uh, and there is no doubt that the race card is going to be played. Well, but let's be very clear, Mike. The day after the election, the votes are counted. Let's mm-hmm. hope that these headbangers that you call them, let's hope that these racists will actually see the result and let the numbers on the count day 
tell them that the people of Loud and the people of Mead are saying no to their racism no to their hatred. And that's the message to the decent people listening to us uh, this morning, the vast majority of people in this country who believe in a cave meal of falcha, etc. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. Tomas Sharkey, Sinn Féin councillor in Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, the Cabinet signed off uh, this week on uh, changes uh, that Ukrainians uh, coming uh, to uh, this country in uh, the coming weeks uh, will... Uh, experience in comparison to those who are already here. Instead of getting €220 uh, a week, uh, they'll be given €38.80 and they will be provided with accommodation by the state, but only for a maximum of 90 days. Tom McEnany is uh, the founder of the group Effective Aid Ukraine and he's on the line. Good morning to you, Tom. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. You've described this as inhumane. Yes, it's hard to see what this will achieve other than put uh, desperate Ukrainian women uh, with children into levels of poverty that it's difficult for most Irish people, I'd say for most listeners, to even conceive of. Um, the the women and ch- the people coming from Ukraine now are almost entirely women and children. We've been helping, we've been helping them. Uh, uh, arrive in Ireland since uh, the war broke out. We had our last mission uh, at Christmas time and bar one 82-year-old man, they were all women um, uh, fleeing from frontline cities in order to try and protect their children. When you're doing that, you're not going to look at the level of uh, financial support in the country. You're just thinking about making sure that your child survives until the next day. So people are still going to come to Ireland. But the difference is that these um, um, uh, that these people, these refugees, are now going to be living in dire poverty. Okay. You ask what else can it achieve? Uh, perhaps it will result in the government parties getting less of a hammering in the local and European elections because of immigration policies. Yes, and I, I, I can't help but agree with you, Michael. I mean, it's a very cynical way of looking at it, that, that, that the government parties are willing to inflict this level of hardship on, on women and children who are doing no more than trying to survive and trying to flee to what has developed a reputation since the war began among Ukrainians as a very welcoming, uh, as a very friendly country. Um, and those who are doing so, who are trying to get to Ireland um, now, will find themselves making very, very tough decisions. I mean, 38 euros to live in Ireland. 38, first of all, that level. Um, some of, I've heard some government politicians say that it puts us in line with other EU countries. Mm. It doesn't. It's below most other EU countries. Most of them but are at 300 the cost, euro, aren't they? Uh, and yeah, well, th- those who ha- are offering less than what is being offered here don't have the same kind of, of housing crisis uh, that exactly, we have in this country. Exactly, exactly. Cost of living in other countries is is uh, is much more reasonable than it is in Ireland. So what you're fi- going to find is that um, uh, mothers, and it's almost entirely mothers, Michael, uh, that mothers will be making very, very tough decisions about um, do they buy a book for their child for school or do they buy nappies for a younger child? It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's very difficult to get one's head around and it's just going to cause um, um, inconceivable hardship. And you know what the people, my heart really goes out to? It's families who are trying to reunite. So oftentimes what's happened, what we've found over the last um, 
uh, almost two years now, is that, <clears throat> first of all, some of the family will go to countries like Ireland and then the rest will try and follow. Um, uh, you might try and bring your grandmother who is very resistant to leaving. So you'll find that some of the family will be here in Ireland getting the normal welfare rate and others who are only now coming sisters um, uh, sometimes children, sometimes sometimes mothers, sometimes grandfathers will now be arriving to join their family and they, they have to come to Ireland because this is where their family are. It's not like they can choose to go somewhere else. This is where their family already is. And they'll have a choice between being reunited with their family and being in abject poverty. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's just one of the things that I have to say, uh, it's hard to get your head around, but one of the things that's um, it's particularly difficult to get one's head around is as far as I'm aware now there are over 30 NGOs, non-government organisations that are helping Ukrainians in Ireland and as far as I'm aware none of them were consulted uh, uh, before bringing in these changes none of them were consulted in terms of how could we do this in a way that causes the least amount of hardship how could we do this in a way that is fair or just reasonable or that's in line with the generosity of spirit, which I believe is is common to most Irish people. There's two strands to this, Tom, that I think are of particular concern. One is that payment of 3880, which will apply for the first three months that people come to this country. And we all know that it's been freezing cold this week. Try and buy a good heavy jumper or an overcoat for 3880 and then feed yourself on top of that. And I'm sure you'll testify better than anybody else how people arrive here from Ukraine with very little possessions. Uh, But you go past that to three months on from now, uh, and let's say three months on from now when we get into April, May type of thing, if people have been here and they have been accommodated and God knows where they've been uh, accommodated, living on 3880, uh, and then they're turfed out, they'll have absolutely nothing. Their payment will increase to 220 again. But uh, where are they going to live? There is nowhere to rent. There is nowhere to rent. And unlike other people, unlike, for instance, refugees, because Ukrainians who come here come here under temporary protection, on the understanding that this war will be temporary and eventually and most most of them will return back to Ukraine. It's not like they're, they're choosing to come to Ireland. So it's a temporary protection, which is different to refugee status. But if you're a refugee in Ireland, you are entitled to HAP. You are entitled to the welfare payment to support your rental accommodation. If you're here as a Ukrainian under temporary protection, you're not entitled to HAP. You're not entitled to any rental support. So what we're saying is that somebody coming out here on a couple of hundred euros a week should be able, after 90 days, to get accommodation in the private rented sector. Um, and the fact is, even if they spent every penny they had, and even if they were able to get accommodation, which is a big if, and you and I know um, that even people who are much better off find it difficult, if not impossible, to get private accommodation in any part of Ireland right now. But even if they spent every penny they have, it still wouldn't be enough to pay the rent. So the government seems to be putting them in an impossible position. And I think it's just unworkable because it means you're talking about after 90 days, you're talking about putting women and children. And as I said, it's almost entirely women and children, Mm. desperate women and children who've spent the last 18 months in frontline, often in frontline cities. Um, dealing with the horror of, of 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 a war not of their making, they come to Ireland. They've they've been living for ninety days um, on something 
on with a level of payment that's well below a poverty payment, well, well below any poverty payment. And then they're thrown out onto the, potentially thrown out onto the street and told, make your way from here and find your own accommodation. It's not possible. And inevitably, Michael, inevitably, these people, if that is what happens, if it if it plays out as the government says it's going to play out, and these are turfed out after 90 days, right. they become homeless. And they become, um, but this the same homelessness supports are not available for Ukrainians either. Mm. But yep. even if they were, <laughs> yep. you and I know we've yep. got a homeless crisis in Ireland. Mm. There yeah. just aren't sufficient supports. Yeah, I know of many people who are just hoping that they're not asked to move out of uh, the place that they're renting at, at the moment. We're living in a country at the moment, Tom, uh, that I am truly ashamed of because of the behaviour of a very small number of people. And whether it's a minority or, or whether uh, it's only a handful of people, they are are doing it in my name whether I like it or not because in Ireland what we're doing is we're burning down places that should be accommodating people who are very vulnerable and in need of protection they're seeking international protection these are the people uh, from uh, countries other than Ukraine uh, as you say uh, Syria Yemen Afghanistan or whatever uh, and we have a, a scandalous situation due to that uh, in part uh, at least this uh, uh, fact that people are burning down buildings or threatening to burn them down or say they won't take single men uh, that they have to be families uh, and unfortunately they're winning that argument but we have about 500 men sleeping on the streets as a result of this this is kind of going uh, under the radar there's not too much of a, a fuss about it because they are men but when we start putting women and children on the streets we're into a, a, a very different realm however serious or scandalous I think it may be to be putting people onto the streets who are fleeing from uh, war and torture and all of these terrible things that are happening in, in the world uh, when we start putting women and children onto the streets we've got very serious concerns for safety uh, and indeed uh, I think it, it goes without saying the the, the the dangers that women face when they're not protected at night on the streets. You're absolutely right. Um, in in many ways, you're right. Well, obviously, it's what people are doing, uh, a very, very small number of Irish people are doing um, in, in terms of burning down centres where it's just rumoured that they might house asylum seekers or refugees is disgusting. It's, it's, a, it's an appalling, cowardly, a shameful act that, that um, as an Irish person, um, um, I find apparent. Um, unfortunately, there's another small number of people who are not directly involved, but who look on and say, well, yes, OK, that who might be accepting of it. And that is equally shameful to my mind. Mm. Um, now, it, it is the case that for the 500 men, and no doubt that number is going to grow, living on the streets, being intense on the street is of itself is is dangerous is an appalling uh, mm. indictment of our system well, um, but you're right and and, 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 and I, I just want to acknowledge whether it's men or women or wherever mm. they come mm. from that that is an appalling situation that we will have placed them in but you're right i mean to, to think that the government's plan as things stand and it is the government's plan as things stand is that after 90 days women and children desperate women and children will be put into out onto the street and will be living in tents if they're fortunate enough to get tents. It's just, it's appalling. And yet it doesn't seem as if, Michael, I'm not hearing any plan B. What is the government's 
alternative to putting desperate women and children who are doing nothing more than just trying to survive, just trying to protect their children from 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 bombing. And the people who are coming now are people who've resisted coming for me for a year and a half. They're not coming here um, willingly. They're not coming here enthusiastically. They've put up with war, they've put up in night with 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 night, nightly bombings for 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 over eighteen months, and yet eventually they have to flee. And we're saying, okay, uh, enjoy your life on the streets. Mm. And it's it's it's, it's, it's I think sometimes, and I, that when we're talking about this, we talk about you know the difficulties that civil servants have, the difficulty that Ireland, which is one of the four or five richest countries in the world, has, and sometimes we lose sight of. The, the real human suffering of the people, particularly, and I'm speaking of Ukrainians because that, that, that's something I know something about. I don't know yeah. as much about yeah. Syrians or people from other countries, but the real human suffering that these women and children are going through. I was in a centre for children with special needs last week in Ukraine um, uh, uh, on the 6th of January. And I was doing, with some colleagues of mine, I was doing Santa Claus with, with, with a group of children with special needs. And the director of the centre said, listen, I'm really sorry that the children are out of sorts this morning, but there was a bombing last night. And uh, they they spent the night in the cellars. Right. These are kids with special needs who had to file into the cellars and yeah. cower in the cellars for the night on Christmas, right. on what for them was Christmas Day. And do you do, um, do, you, do, do, do you spend much time in Ukraine, Tom? I've been there uh, three times in the last eight months. Right. Um, You're, so a brave man. I'm, I'm, You're a brave man. You're a brave man. You know, well, thank you. I, I, thank I, I, you. I don't think there's any corner of Ukraine that I'd fancy being in. Anyway, I don't claim to be a brave man, uh, but uh, certainly uh, a brave thing to do and a, a lovely thing to do to be with special needs children uh, at Christmas, uh, hoping to see Santi. But the war interfered, as you say. Yeah, the war. And it's it's just there's another centre where, where I visited, which is in the west of Ukraine. Um, and you can imagine, OK, so here here's the centre. It, it should be far away from the bombing. It's still in that particular centre was it was it, or that particular area was bombed repeatedly over the Christmas period. And in that centre, which is already bursting at the seams, um, 20 of the 97 uh, boys and young men with significant special needs had to be relocated, internally relocated from occupied territory. So it meant that all of these kids with special needs, even though they they seemed to be geographically far away from the war, they were all suffering as a result of very significant overcrowding, which was directly related to the war. Mm. So it, I, I, I do wherever get you go in Ukraine, it's 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 affecting everybody's lives sure. all the time. I, I, I often had comments from people saying, why are they coming here? There's plenty of parts of Ukraine uh, that are, are not affected. But I think no matter what part of Ukraine you're in, you have to assume that it is a potential target because Russia is at war with Ukraine. When it comes to putting people on the streets, uh, the sense I'm getting from uh, what I'm hearing, Tom, is that this is a calculated decision. Uh, And the calculation is that the government won't have to say to women and children, enjoy your time, enjoy your life on the streets, as you said a a few moments ago, because they believe that this change in benefits that they've uh, that they're about to implement uh, will result in, in nobody coming here uh, do do you think this will stop people coming from ukraine no 
I don't, I don't, I think it may, maybe it might slow down people coming here. But the fact is that if you're, think for for a moment, if you're a mother with children in a frontline city and you're looking to save the lives of your children, you're not thinking about what quality of life they may have wherever it is you go. You're just thinking about what can I do to, to, to make sure that my children survive for another week. Or if your children have been severely traumatized by missiles landing in their area night after night for, for, for 18 months, you may be going, where can I go so they can get some peace of mind? And when you're looking around, it's not like we are... Um, 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 it's it, it, it's not like it's any less attractive in Ireland because the fact is the rates in other countries all around Europe are also very low. Yeah. So wherever it is you go in Europe, you're going to be facing low rates of state support. Ireland, to its credit, because we are a generous, warm, open country with generous, warm, open people, are the 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 response of the Irish people to the Ukrainian to the war in Ukraine has been amazing. And that word has got out. If you speak to Ukrainians here, they have nothing but gratitude for for what for the Irish people and love and for the for the friendliness, for the hospitality, for the warmth that Irish people has shown them. And that gets out on social media. So people know Mm -hmm. that Ireland in general is 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 a wonder and they're right is that Ireland Mm -hmm. in general is a wonderful place to be. It's just the government is trying to um to change that perception. Um, and even aside from the government's successfully changing it, um, I think you're still going to find that people who are, who are, if they're desperate enough, and God knows they are, they're still going to flee to other countries, including Ireland. It's just that when, they're, when they get here, they're going to be forced to live in abject poverty, which I think is a decision which is out of line and out of kilter with how most Irish people think. I don't think the government in making this decision, in forcing through these changes, I don't think, it may be in line with a very, very small minority of Irish people right now, but I don't think it's in line with the the thinking and the feeling of the majority of the Irish people. Tom, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Tom McEnany is uh, the founder of Effective Aid Ukraine. Michael Reed on LMFM. We spoke to Loud County Councillor Conor Keelan on uh, the programme yesterday about his annoyance at a motion he had hoped would be debated in December that would, if adopted, twin Dundalk with Bethlehem. He was annoyed that the Cahirlock had disallowed his emergency motion. Uh, we said that we'd give Paula Butterly a uh, right to reply to what he had said on the programme. And the Herlock has responded to my email with an email saying prior to the meeting she informed Councillor Keelan that pursuant to standing orders he had reached his maximum quota of notices for the meeting and as a result his emergency motion couldn't go forward however should he feel it necessary for the motion to be brought in the month of December a solution could have been for him to ask a fellow member to propose it and this would afford him the opportunity to have spoken on it there's a provision for a motion to be withdrawn but this must be done in writing three days prior to the meeting. Unfortunately, it became apparent during the meeting that Councillor Keelan had chosen not to follow that 
route and therefore his motion could not be facilitated and our thanks to the Cahirlock Paula Butterly. Now to some of your comments. Uh, we've uh, WhatsApp here from somebody saying Michael, the government is not putting anyone at risk. You and your guest hit the nail on the head. There is nowhere to rent in Ireland and the government probably realised this and that they're trying to discourage people from coming here. The people from Ukraine have a choice where they can go. The poor citizens of Gaza cannot go anywhere. Thank you indeed for your message to the programme. I think we're talking about emergency accommodation being made uh, available to people, the likes of the hotels and disused buildings uh, that people are standing outside with placards saying not... Uh, in my backyard uh, as we're seeing in almost every town and village of uh, the country at this stage. Margaret says, Michael, I have great respect for Ukrainian people coming to our country, fleeing such terror and we need a workforce as well. Population is getting older after all but we have a poor health service. GPs are run off their feet. How can a government keep allowing people in when those already here have no place to live, no hospital beds and it's no one's fault only Putin's. It's crazy stuff, says Margaret. Another WhatsApp from somebody who says, Michael, I totally agree with you about people being full of hatred. It's frightening, to be honest. However, I think people who have genuine concerns must also be encouraged to express those concerns democratically by contacting their local and national politicians and not be afraid of being labelled as far-right or racist. I refer to people who have genuine concerns about immigration policy, not those who are burning down buildings and public transport and attacking our emergency services. Thank you as well for your message. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. And if you want to comment, you can also email us michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, hospitals are overrun with uh, people who are sick uh, and not surprisingly so given the time of year. I don't think the flu season has peaked just as yet. But uh, I'm reading this morning in the Irish Independent that nearly 900 patients were hospitalised for flu or COVID last week alone, heaping pressure on an already overstretched hospital service in this country. As a result, people are on trolleys. Yesterday, there were 18 people on trolleys in our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. That's a lot of people to be on trolleys as you know if you were in the hospital or if you've ever been in the hospital when there's been that many people waiting on a trolley to be admitted to a bed. Well, they've been admitted. There just isn't a bed available for them. But those 18 people... Uh, Well, whilst it's a lot, it pales into comparison uh, when you look at the situation in Limerick. For a long time, Limerick has been the worst hospital in the country. 101 people on trolleys yesterday. Or or were they? Or what do you describe as being on a a trolley? Uh, Is that a a trolley in the emergency department or is it a a trolley up on a, a ward that is fully staffed? 
That's a cloud of doubt that was introduced in an interview on Tuesday by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, when he was speaking to RTE's 6-1 News. Maeve Brehany is the Assistant Director of Industrial Relations with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO, and Maeve is on the line. A very good morning to you, Maeve, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Your organisation has taken exception with what the Minister had to say to we have, uh, and thank you, Michael. And I suppose if you consider, we have been counting um, trolleys for over 18 years. Um, and while there might have been a, a cloud or shade thrown on something in an attempt to, I think, distract from the reality that our members and the patients that they serve are experiencing every day, the, the reality remains that the all of the hospitals are overcrowded. It's dangerous for the nurses that we represent and it's dangerous for the patients that they serve. So if somebody is on a trolley, um, it, like it, it has been proven that that is detrimental to their health when they've been on a trolley for longer than they should be. Um, so whether a trolley is in a corridor, whether it's a trolley has now become a large chair, um, or whether a trolley, as you said, some of them are moved on towards Uh, We would also take exception to the statement that those wards, um, so wards away from ED, are also fully staffed. They're not. They may, if staffed, be staffed to the requirement for the patient or bed number that they should have, not for an untold or undisclosed additional amount of patients. So all of that has to be taken into account. So if somebody's on a trolley, be it in ED or um, kind of up a ward, it is up a ward which is already full capacity and staffed to that capacity, not for additional overflow. So the, the overlying and underlying head piece to this is that the numbers are still too high. The overcrowding exists by splitting it into, um, you know, ED trolley numbers, um, who's on a trolley up a ward, who's in a surge. It, none of that makes a difference if it's not the proper care pathway for that patient. Maeve, stay with me. sufficient nurses. Stay with me for a second, maybe, if yeah. you will, because I think we can actually listen to what Stephen Donnelly said on Tuesday. Yeah, the, the, the INMO figures include both patients on trolleys and patients in beds, in these uh, surge beds, which are beds in wards fully staffed. The number of people waiting for a trolley was 395 today. Now, that is far too high. And we know that in some hospitals, the situation for patients is simply not acceptable and hasn't been acceptable for a long time. Importantly, though, progress is being made. Uh, this morning, for example, there were high numbers today, but in spite of that, nearly one in three of our, of our emergency departments had no patients on a trolley. Uh, the seven most congested accounted for about half the patients. What we've seen last year and uh, mid-last year, we rolled out a new approach to dealing with this, getting away from the annual winter plan. And critically, over the last six months of last year versus 2022, there was about a 22% reduction in trolleys. And most importantly, for those waiting over 24 hours who are over 75, there was a nearly 40% reduction. Right. Uh, that's Stephen Donnelly speaking to RTE One Television 6-1 News on Tuesday. May Brehany of the INMO on the line with us. Uh, there's progress being made, uh, the Minister said there. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree with that. It doesn't look like it on the face of things, but maybe you could explain what he said at the start there about how you're counting people on trolleys. He, he described some of those people as being in beds and surge beds. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But you see, it, this, this is where... You know, in an effort to deflect from the state of overcrowding, the Minister for Health and the HSE have sought to elude that the INMO is not presenting an accurate trolley count. That's totally wrong. So the HSE in its own trolley count is categorising patients differently and not counting patients on trolleys. Mm. Um, Because some of them have been allocated a bed on a system, but they're still on a trolley. So they're waiting for somebody else to be discharged somebody else to leave the hospital. They may know that they're going to a bed on a particular ward, but they're not there yet. And for the length of time that someone is on that trolley and waiting to be physically in that bed, in that proper care path and with proper nursing care, um, then they're left vulnerable. So that's the problem. Right. And this is, oh God, excuse me, I'm just having an awful sense of deja vu. Uh, You've just taken me back 20 years in time to when Brian Cowan was the Minister for Health. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember uh, back that far when people were very upset uh, about the idea of people being treated uh, on trolleys when they should have been in hospital beds. Uh, and there were two sets of figures being produced at the time, one at that stage from the Irish Nurses Organisation, uh, as uh, your union was known then, uh, and then one from the HSE. And there were different uh, up to 2006 when Mary Harney became the Minister for Health, declared the situation uh, a national emergency and a agreed system was put in place for counting trolley figures but here we go backwards in time uh, back to 2005-2004 it would seem but it's even it's, it's worse than that because the methodology that was agreed between the parties in 2006 for counting has been consistent ever since this is now an effort to break away from that and, and try and if you want split hairs the reality is your listeners patients who are going into hospitals in the locality, the 18 people on, on the trolleys in, in OLOL, you know, people see this by having this argument. Instead of trying to discredit the work of nurses or their trade union, the Minister for Health and senior decision makers within the HSC need to focus on an improvement in the dire overcrowding um, situation in our hospitals. And to that state of emergency that was declared around 2006 time, the figures are significantly higher now. Um, so so it's a bit of a, a moot point in, in talking about what we're counting that's different. Our methodology mm. has not changed in 18 years. What has changed is the numbers have increased. The situation has deteriorated. Um, and for somebody to say that there are sufficient staffing numbers or fully staffed wards 
is inaccurate. We know that there are vacancies throughout the system that we're, you know, recruiting all of the time just to stand still. We need more nurses. But the reality is for patients, we need to be honest with the patients who are going into our hospitals and we need to be honest about the very hard work that's done by nurses and healthcare professionals in trying to provide safe patient care in what is, as we said, dire overcrowding situations in the hospitals. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if you go back 20 years in time and the intervening time, uh, something else has changed, and that is 20 years ago, patients on trolleys weren't put on wards. Uh, we were told back then it was dangerous because of infection control. Uh, has infection control improved? Uh, no, it, it hasn't at all. Um, and, and this is why, you know, as moving patients up, up the house as such or up to wards doesn't change the, the um, perspective for the patients. It doesn't improve things. It actually just hides the problem. Right. Huge amounts. Uh, I can't imagine 101 people being uh, on uh, trolleys in any hospital, which is uh, the case in Limerick, and it's not for the first time. Uh, how dangerous is a situation like that? Well, the problem is that for, for patient care, it's evidence-based that the longer they're on a trolley, and the more detrimental it is to their health. Uh, like if you consider if somebody's in hospital, presentations to hospital, if there's 101 people, for example, in Limerick, the amount of people that are ill enough to be admitted, and it's these admitted patients, so they've, they've presented to A&E, it's not just like there's a load of people coming in um, with colds or flus. There are people who are determined ill enough to require admission, and it's those people that don't have a pathway, so there aren't beds, there aren't sufficient beds, and nursing staff, to care for those patients. So by moving them around it's and, and you know, talking about how many we're counting and where they are, these people are on trolleys. It's not good enough for Irish citizens. It's not good enough for the nurses we represent who are trying to care for mm. not only their, um, you know, overloaded complement as is, but now additional um, patients as well. So if you're, whether you're in ED or in a ward, it is not acceptable to just put extra overcrowding of patients um, into that system and then expect everything will be okay and that the nurses are going to be able to care for them safely. Mm. What's the point in going into nursing, I suppose, uh, is a question that comes to mind because I'd have thought that you would take or enter a profession like that because you wanted to treat people, but if it's not possible to treat people or some people, it, it really must uh, leave people disillusioned? Well, the nursing profession, when we have, you know, appropriate staffing, is is a very strong and good profession that people welcome. I mean, a lot of people even that move away internationally, they're going to health services where they can practice safely. Nursing as a job isn't the problem. Nursing without sufficient resources and in a system that's overcrowded and that the government and the HSE aren't tackling sufficiently, that's the problem. If they were, you know, enabled to go into their work and practice safely with appropriate um, patient numbers um, and appropriate capacity, then it's a very good profession and one that they would encourage others to be in. But at the moment, the problem isn't the profession. It is those who are in charge um, not focusing on tackling that and making it 
um, a safe health service both for the nurses and midwives that we represent and also that the patients that they trained to and want to serve safely every day. Okay. Maeve, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much for joining Thank us on the programme today. Maeve Brehany is uh, the Assistant Director of Industrial Relations with uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the INMO. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, when it, it comes to how nurses and doctors are, are coping with overcrowded hospitals, I have to say one of the most striking articles I've ever read is in today's Irish Independent, Evan Murray reporting on the experience of one doctor, Dr Lisa Cunningham, uh, who as the report says, was racing between critically unwell patients in a queue of ambulances lined up outside the emergency department and broke down in tears. She said she witnessed the worst ever overcrowding conditions. As she assessed a patient for a suspected stroke, she knew that there was physically no space to treat that patient inside the unit. There's a quote that says, I could feel the tears in my eyes. It was a very sad moment for me. And she went on to say, we had 140 patients come through between Monday and Tuesday, the highest number I've ever seen. We had ambulances piling up outside. The tension in the air was so intense. You could feel everybody's frustration, the patients and the staff. I was talking to two of the paramedics I have known for years and we all said, This was just a nightmare. I thought, here I am, treating a patient for a suspected life-changing event and we didn't have space for them. It's just not right. It shouldn't be like this. It gets like this every few months, but I I felt so much sadness in that moment. I needed to help the patient, but I couldn't physically make a bed appear for them. I couldn't make more doctors or nurses magically appear to work in the unit. Dr Cunningham also says in this article, So many clerical and clinical staff are saying they can't cope because of the pressure that is there and they can't do anything about it. People call it burnout. It's not burnout. We are morally injured. We are so hurt morally looking at patients on trolleys and trying to give them as much care as we possibly can. We can't keep going. We know this is wrong. And she said, doctors are not being replaced. Nurses are not being replaced. These are literally the people who are trying to see patients, discharge patients on the wards and turn around ambulances. I honestly can't understand how a staff embargo is going, is ongoing when we are in the middle of an overcrowding crisis. How is that justifiable? Uh, I'll read you some more of what Dr. Lisa Cunningham, an emergency medicine doctor, said in this article. She says that there's some patients up in the wards who could go home and free up space, but they can't until they're discharged. We've had situations where one doctor is trying to cover six or seven wards and do all of the discharges. And she says this is not unexpected. This was well anticipated. We have a winter surge every year. I was on call last New Year too when there was absolute uproar in the media and the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, made promises. And then 
The exact, the exact same thing happened this year because nothing has been done to fix what is happening. When you ask Stephen Donnelly, Dr Cunningham says, and the decision makers what has changed to help our situation and the patient's situations in one year, they can't tell us. I want specifically to know what is different from this year to last in emergency departments. A huge amount of staff who say they don't look at the media anymore. It's all over the news and on the front pages and the headlines basically saying how bad they are at doing their jobs when they know that they're not. It's a chronic lack of resources. We face so much of the frustrations of the patient from a verbal and a physical point of view. When the conditions faced by patients are reported in the media, we will get a huge decrease in people coming to the emergency department because they are afraid. Uh, that's not just a, a comment that's come to us uh, from any old uh, ordinary citizen. It's a consultant emergency department, Dr. Lisa Cunningham, uh, speaking to the Irish Independent today. It's pretty shocking stuff, as they say. It's a very striking article. Another very striking article in a newspaper today appears in the Irish Times. The headline on that probably says it all. RSA earned half a million euro from no-show driving tests. That's €500,000 or more accurately, €547,000 in fees that were paid by people to sit a driving test, but people who didn't bother to show up to sit that test. Let's speak once again to Susan Gray, founder and chairperson of PARC. Very good morning to you, Susan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us all in the programme this morning. I'm sure you're not surprised by this. It's more or less what you said to us the other day on the programme, and I I take it that it's a case, as far as you're concerned, of having to say, I hate to say, I told you so. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for asking me on this morning. Yes, we're not surprised, but it shows, and we will continue to show, that the RSA is not doing their job properly. They're presiding over this farcical situation and they're quite happy to continue presiding over it. Whereby a learner never has to set a driving test. All they have to do is pay the RSA 85 euro when they're applying for a date for an application, a driving test application. The RSA retain the 85 euro each time and they don't seem to care of the Applicant shows up and sits the test. How many learner drivers have we out there that could have sat the test if the RSA encouraged them to do so? A lot of them would have passed the test by now. Be better drivers out there. We're sharing the road with all these inexperienced. And I'm sure not all of them are playing the system uh, and I I imagine quite a a few of them couldn't attend for various reasons. You might uh, not feel well and on the day of your test, test positive for COVID or something like that. Uh, There's lots of reasons why people may not show. uh, But I I gather, given the amount of people who didn't show up for tests, that quite a a number of them are gaming the system. Uh, It's an awful lot of no-shows, nearly 6,500, according to the Irish Times, 6,441 one people who didn't turn up for their test. Yeah, and these don't include people that cancel the test, that contact RSA and say for some reason they're sick or whatever that they can't attend. This is not including these. These are people that simply don't turn up on the day. 
and the RSA continue to renew their permits time and time again. There's no need for learning to ever turn up. There's no other country that would accept that. Mm. Now, the RSA also said, and was very worrying in the article, that they don't have the records to show the number of learner permits renewed each year to drivers who fail to show up to their driving test. Why do they not have these records? This is our single licensing authority in Ireland. And they say they don't have the records. When you apply, if a learner applies to set the test to get a date, they have to fill out an application form. Mm. And on that application form, as a failed to say, to inform the RSA, what is the status of your current learner permit? So the RSA gives us information. Why are they not doing that? And why are they not giving information now? information out there in the public domain. Okay, so if you apply for a learner permit today, uh, you'll be given one for two years, isn't it? Uh, and after that, it's reduced to one year unless you sit a, a test or apply to sit a test. Yeah, for your third or subsequent learner permit, um, you have to the RSA say on their website, learner drivers cannot renew a third or subsequent learner permit without having sat a driving test in the previous two years or having a driving test arranged. Yeah. Now, so, so if you apply for a test and don't turn up, uh, you'll ha- have your permit reissued? Yes. Now, the simple solution to us would be just delete the last line and have it that learner drivers cannot renew a third or subsequent learner permit without having sat a driving test in the previous two years. Full stop. Forget about or having a driving test arranged. Mm. Delete that last paragraph. Now, the Jack Chambers, Minister Jack Chambers, had said to the media and to part of the meeting in October that when the backlog of the driving tests are down, which he believes and RSA believe will happen in the middle of this year. And when that driving test waiting list is down to approximately 10 weeks, then he'll tackle the no-shows and bring in new legislation. He has a current bill in front of him now going through the door. We want him to put a provision on that. Artisha, Leo Varadkar, put it to him to put a provision in this current bill. Instead of waiting until whenever the backlog's down, and if they're not being sincere, should they could forever in the day say the backlog's not down to 10 weeks. And then that doesn't make them bring in new legislation. But if he waits and the backlog is down this summer, he has to start a whole new road traffic up. Mm. I stay just through the door, through the shannon, could take a year or two. And all the time, these learners are able to roll over their permit time and time again. What, do, what, what does that mean? Just to, uh, explain that to me, Susan, because I, I, I was just about to ask you, when you say time and time again, what does that mean? Because there used to be a case where people were driving on a, a, a learner uh, permit for 10, 20 years. Is that still the case? Yes. Oh. The, as I was just about to say, the Irish Times did a great report there in October showing, and the RSA agreed with it, that up to 30,000 learner drivers are on their third or subsequent learner permit that have never, ever sat a driving test. 
Now, we wanted to know, and the, the Irish Times did ask our estate, how many of these learner permit holders are multiple, have multiple, gone through multiple um, learner permits? And our estate simply say they can't, they don't have the records. That's another alarming fact. Why are they not collecting this information? It's at their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Do the math and put it out into the public domain. This is a huge issue. And the poor guard are out there catching unaccompanied learner drivers. Why do people not sit the test? I mean, some of them may not be ready. They're too nervous or whatever. But even if you failed it, I mean, yeah. you'd yeah. have your license renewed anyway. Why not? Why not sit the test? I mean, you might get lucky. Yeah, but if you have a simple loophole there, Michael, whereby you can just renew it and renew it and renew it. A yeah. lot of people just say, right, I'll renew it, renew it this time, and maybe the next yeah. time. I'm not taking, the maybe it's I'm not taking a day off work. I'm not going to pass it yeah. anyway. That's yeah. everything, yeah. And okay. the next time they see this loophole and they say, oh, well. Now, the RSA um, noticed this loophole way back in 2013. Hmm. Now, they thought it was important, a uh, huge loophole, because they decided in the Road Safety Strategy 2013 to close this loophole and make it mandatory for learner permits to actually set the test before they would give them a new permit. Mm. And, it's, cost, uh, it's costly, though. You pay €85 Euro, uh, for nothing, um, and that's why the government has ended up with this half a million for doing nothing. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, that would be argued because the tester is in place sitting there and just nobody has turned up. Uh, but uh, you pay the €85 Euro over, but it, it doesn't end there because uh, you, you'll get cheaper insurance, won't you, as a fully licensed yeah. driver than a, a learner would? Yeah, it just does not make sense, Michael. Now, the RSA is one of their arguments in those times today is that they don't actually make any money. The half a million doesn't really go to them. They have to employ testers who have to sit and wait for these drivers. It's not going to show up. But they're saying to the government, we need more money, we need more testers because the backlog's very a long period and a lot of areas. But the money seems to be wasted. If the government gives them more money for more testers, it's more testers sitting waiting on over 100 a week that's not showing up. Now, last year, it was 2% no shows. This year, it's 3%. It's gone up from about 350 to 500. So it's, the problem is escalating it again. At the beginning of the year, there wasn't as many no-shows as there was from July to December. So it shows people, more and more people are simply not showing up. And it's going to continue to escalate. And RSA don't seem to be worried because they say it's down a lot from 2019. That's not good enough. Hmm. The bottom line here is we have thousands and thousands not showing up for the test. We have testers sitting in offices wasting their time being paid and no shows. They don't know somebody's not going to show up. So that's having a massive effect on the slots for learners that are keen to get an early bit for a test. 
Yeah. And they've been given a date maybe five or six months. To and and it also means Them that we're all, are lost. And it also means that we're sharing the roads with unqualified drivers um, who yes, most likely are driving unaccompanied if they're doing this for years and end. Nora well, say could encourage them, but they're not. They don't. They seem to be quite happy taking on half a million last year. Okay, it really is remarkable, Susan. We'll leave it there, though, for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. Susan Gray, founder and chairperson of the Road Safety Group, Park. Michael Reed on LMFM. I read uh, some of uh, that article from the Irish Independent, uh, the comments of uh, hospital consultant, emergency hospital consultant, uh, doctor, and uh, the stress and strain that she was under brought to tears because she was attending a stroke patient in a car park and knew that there was nowhere inside the hospital to treat that patient, a life-changing experience, as she put it, uh, thanks to the woman texting saying, it sounds like a third world country. Shame, shame, shame on our government. Thank you indeed. Uh, another uh, text from Damien who says, uh, the drastic situation in an emergency department is a direct reflection on uh, the general state of the greater health service, ranging from lack of adequate community health care services, helping people to be cared for in their own homes, to nowhere to discharge patients from other wards in a general hospital when they can receive hospital step-down care before going home. There are they, Those are just two examples of a dysfunctional health service whereby all the patient log jams end up in the emergency departments and staff are overrun and suffering from poor moral uh, morale, I beg your pardon, suffering from poor morale, carrying the load of uh, an inadequate government action over many decades. Thanks, uh, Damien, for that. Uh, very much in line with a comment that uh, comes from a Navin listener who says that the HSE has been a disgraceful failure for years but no one's losing their jobs. The health minister is a complete failure and comes out with a bit of waffle every so often to justify his salary. The HSE should be disbanded immediately, says our caller. Well, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Now to another worrying statistic uh, that was reported in the JAMA Network Open Journal that I've been reading about in the Irish Independent today. It's a study that involved 604,552 children aged 18 or under and 1 in 10 of the girls in the study has used diet pills in the course of the last year. Alan Jennings is the communications officer with BodyWise, the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland, and she joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Alan, and thank you indeed for your time. Are you surprised by that statistic? Good morning, Michael, and thank you for having us on. Um, I suppose it's, it's really worrying that um, so many children and young people have been able, firstly, to access these kinds of medications. And, um, you know, that those that figure is really stark, that one in 10 figure. Um, you know, these medications, not only are they ineffective, but they're often very unregulated and maybe very dangerous to a person's health. In relation to the work that we do here at BodyWise, we support people affected by eating disorders. So we know that one of the major risk factors in the development of an eating disorder 
is going on a diet. And so that's really worrying from our point of view. Um, we know that eating disorders are on the rise in young people, particularly over the past uh, five years. We've seen an increase in admissions with eating disorders from um, 33 in 2018 to 80 in 2022. And more hospital figures are showing that in under 18s, there's been an increase in from 11 percent to 22 percent, 11 percent in 2018 to 22 percent in 2022. So it's really worrying that at the same time we're seeing this increase um, in people having access to um, medications that are unsafe like this. Right. Unsafe and not uh, effective. They haven't been prescribed. So where do they get the medicine or whatever way you would describe these pills? Yeah, from what I understand, there seems to be a very unregulated market online. Um, So I think, you know, it's a mixture of young people being vulnerable to body image pressures at that time in their life. And we're surrounded by this culture that kind of supports um, dieting, weight loss and correlating that with with health, success and happiness. And I think, you know, young people are particularly vulnerable to that message. and when the, these products are easy to access and unregulated in, in that sense, and sometimes even marketed to young people, um, it can be difficult for them to avoid. And oftentimes young people think in a very black and white way, in a kind of good and bad um, way. So I suppose in in that way as well, you know, if weight loss is seen as something to strive for, then, then young people are more likely to turn towards these um, types of products. Uh, and uh, is it surprising at all that girls are more influenced by that type of messaging, that type of pressure to be body beautiful, whatever that is? Yeah, I suppose when we think of the different body ideals that are kind of perpetuated for males and females, there is a little bit of, of a difference there. Oftentimes for men, it can be more around musculature and um, kind of fitness and fitspo, whereas for women, there can often be kind of a, a more thin ideal. And that's not always the case. There, there's there's um, differences in that as well. But with eating disorders, we do know that um, they can affect anyone, uh, male and female, but we we do hear more from females affected by eating disorders as well. In your experience, Ellen, um, when girls or boys, for that matter, come to you at BodyWise, if uh, they're using diet pills, um, whatever they are, or wherever they get them, uh, is this um, usually the case uh, that their weight is what it should be and they're looking to lose weight when they shouldn't be? Yeah, and I suppose that's not always the case either. We know that eating disorders can occur at any shape or size. You know, a person doesn't have to be a particular size um, to experience an eating disorder. So I think this is something that can affect anyone. Um And particularly if the person is already unwell physically, you know, this can have a really detrimental impact. We know that eating disorders have one of the highest mortality rates of all um, of all mental health conditions. And so that's due to physical complications as well as increased risk of suicide. And so in this study, it actually mentioned that as well, that there was a a correlation between the use of these medications and increased risk of um, depression, poor self-esteem and eating disorders so there there is a link there um 
And I suppose there's a risk with any medication of this kind for it to be misused by someone with an eating disorder. The eating disorder will look for any way to kind of challenge and control those eating disorder thoughts and behaviours and it will latch on to any way to do Mm. that. So it's really important that we're aware of that. What's the difference between um, being conscious of of your weight and having an eating disorder? Uh, Because uh, there's a a point uh, where the two separate, is there? Yeah, so I suppose when we talk about the culture that we live in and there can be an increased emphasis on on dieting and um, trying to strive for a certain body type and there comes a point um, when these behaviours become disordered and in a sense there's a certain level of disordered behaviours that we will see quite commonly that might not mean the person has an eating disorder but when the behaviour becomes compulsive and the person feels they no longer have a choice in what they do, that's when we're coming more into the realm of an eating disorder. And so the eating disorder begins to control the person as opposed to the person feeling that they're, you know, in some way trying to control certain aspects of their life and um, their mm. their body and their food. So it, it's much more, I suppose, than just the food and the behaviours that we see on the surface. There's often an underlying emotional core to the eating disorder that really needs to be addressed. And very difficult to address it uh, because we're all dieting. Uh, that's part of being human, isn't it? Uh, we eat uh, and uh, we decide what we're eating and how much we're going to eat. Uh, rightly or, or wrongly, uh, but every single human being is on a, a diet. Uh, but uh, when that becomes a, a problem, you, you have to uh, look at this necessary function of, of eating relative to the disorder. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, you know, we're, we're living, we have to eat. Food is a part of life. And when it becomes something that's uh, provoking a lot of anxiety and stress in a person or taking them away from, um, I suppose, social interactions or the person is becoming increasingly isolated in order to keep up with these kind of lifestyle rules that they may have set for themselves, you know, that's when it's becoming a little more, um, a little more worrying. And I think, you know, it's not always something that we can see on the surface. Um, I've heard from a number of people that, you know, people in their life mightn't have realised how difficult it was for them um, because all they were seeing was kind of the surface level and they didn't see kind of what was underneath mm. for a person. Um, I t- I and that, the, that's worrying. Sure, I take it these products uh, make your job all the harder. And I see the UK equivalent to Body Wise uh, calling for a clampdown on the sale of these products online. And I'm sure you'd echo that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, something that was said recently, um, I heard in a podcast was around kind of resilience and how it's all well and good making people more resilient to this type of content that we're exposed to online. But that environment also needs to change and we need to, to push for that. Okay, well, BodyWise is there to help, and that's W H Y, as in asking the question why BodyWise at BodyWise.ie. If somebody is concerned, I take it quite often, Ellen, uh, you hear from people who are concerned about other people, though parents and friends and uh, siblings and so on. We do. And I would like to say that you don't need a diagnosis to avail of our support services. And we're here to listen if anyone has any types of concerns around this. 
And we do have our uh, free family support program starting back tonight. And that's a four week evidence based program for anyone who wants to learn how they can support someone with an eating disorder. So um, if you want to sign up for that, you're welcome to reach out via um, our email address. And that's P-I-L-A-R at bodywise.ie. So that's pillar at bodywise.ie. Okay, well, very good timing uh, for us to speak to you today uh, because that's starting tonight and pillar at bodywise.ie. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. Uh, and indeed, I'm sure people can contact you directly through the website bodywise.ie for that matter. Thanks, as I say. Ellen Jennings is the communications officer with Bodywise. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Paddy Duffy texting us uh, this morning. An interesting point, I think, that Paddy makes. He says uh, there's these no-shows for the driving tests and these are people who think that they won't pass. They're not good enough drivers to pass the test. And then they're out there driving amongst the rest of us. Paddy says that's the worrying point. Good point, Paddy, as always. And indeed, uh, it is, as you say, very worrying. Uh, If the driver themselves don't feel capable of passing the test, they don't turn up for the test and continue to drive on the roads. It really is uh, an Irish solution, isn't it? Uh, Good morning, Michael says. uh, Another listener regarding our hospital bed shortages, which is totally unacceptable in this day and age and has continued to spiral out of control. Uh, today, 2024, here we are. When is this debacle ever going to be resolved uh, for client patient care? As we are all aware, back in the day, the regional hospital was to be built in Navan, and at that time, uh, well, there was great hope, but it never happened. It needs to be brought to the fore again. Let's build a new hospital for Navan. Uh, a Navan hospital, there's plenty of land and plenty of room for the improvement to the hospital in Navan. Our Ladies' Hospital. Uh, is uh, well capable of all of that, according to Peter Inkells, who sends us that message. And he says, as all doctors, nurses and staff, generally speaking, are overrun, let's change that situation. I suppose that would cost a few bob, Peter. We've plenty of money in this country, though, don't we? We've we've money to burn in this country, I think. Billions we don't know what to do with. Uh, Pat in County Monaghan says, Michael Reid wants to take more people into Ireland who will also get sick. Thanks, uh, Pat in County Monaghan. I don't necessarily want to take more people into Ireland. Uh, I just don't want to object to people finding refuge here uh, from torture, from war, from death. Um, somebody else in touch with us uh, this is Margaret I, I think uh, who says why don't the so called far right go and live in Russia, North Korea Iran or Burma where their mentality would be welcomed as they spiel uh, the, they are spouting is on the same wavelength as the dictators who lead those countries or better still she says uh, let them go to Ukraine or Gaza to see what real wars look like. They are cowardly to show their faces. And, she says, they hide behind screens and spout lies. How brave is that? Do they work or are they lazy, cowardly people who are living off the state and have never paid a cent into the system in their lives? If they had jobs, they wouldn't have time to spread hatred. They'd be too tired after a long day's work. 
Why was there 100,000 on the dole before Ukrainians started coming here? Why didn't Irish people take those jobs? Don't um, complain about foreign workers if you are too lazy to work. These people are dictators and they would prefer if Ireland was a dictatorship, says Margaret. Well, thanks uh, indeed uh, for that, uh, Margaret. Um, we'd uh, Somebody else uh, who uh, probably... Uh, won't like that message uh, who was talking about uh, all of uh, the uh, threat in Ukraine being uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, and uh, why don't they move west? Um, Well, perhaps uh, that person would take it upon themselves to move over there or spend a few days there and feel uh, safe or not, as uh, the case may be. Somebody else in touch saying the immigration system in Ireland is being abused. Um, what makes you say that? Uh, what do you know about it? Uh, have you got the inside track? Uh, I'm sure like any system, there is some abuse, but uh, to what degree uh, is a different thing um, because it, it's pretty strict, actually, uh, and very hard to abuse it. Uh, there's strict regulations uh, that people coming into this country uh, have to fulfil, and they are anybody in this country uh, is here... Um, legitimately uh, and uh, their applications to stay here are being processed and if they're unsuccessful they're deported so I think that's a stupid statement actually yeah all right Uh, but anyway thanks uh, for uh, making uh, the statement to us that's all we have time for for today Uh, Maggie McGuire research Chris Murray was in the control tower I'm Michael God willing we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie